On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, you are tuned to Deep Dive, the All Music Books podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, histories, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve Jay. Today's guest is Ray Paget, who authored the book Cover Me, the stories behind the greatest cover songs of all time. Welcome back, Ray. Thanks for having me back. So let's talk about cover songs in general. We last talked about your book about Leonard Cohen and a cover song tribute album to him. These are some classic stories in this book about cover songs. What is it about cover songs that people, including you, love so much? I think there are a couple main things. The first and maybe biggest is that people, I think, love hearing a song they know performed in a different style, a different genre, a different sound by a different performer, somehow taking something they already know and reinventing it. That's the first and maybe biggest one. There's also, I think, a second reason people love cover songs, which is that it can introduce them to a song or artist they don't know. Um, you know, you think about like Nirvana covering, you know, the Vaselines or even Elvis covering Big Mama Thornton, all these, you know, sort of lesser known songs or artists getting bigger exposure from covers. It's a great introduction to learn some music history. Your book has a, a nice take on the beginning of cover songs, and cover songs came out just after World War II, I think, but they were not what we think of them now. Can you explain that? In some ways, they were the opposite of what I just said initially about you know doing something different. I think now that's sort of the platonic ideal of the cover song, right? The artist changes something. But when they first started, the exact opposite was true. The goal of the cover song was literally to mimic the original song as exactly as possible, to essentially trick record buyers into buying, you know, the version that's on your label, the version that makes you money, as opposed to the version they may have heard on the radio or somewhere. And the origin of the name cover, there's a few stories behind it, but the most plausible one seems to be that it's because they literally wanted to cover the record on the shelves, the original record, with their sound-alike version to trick people into buying it. So it was more about the song title than the artist who is covering it. Yeah, I mean, that that sort of reflects, you know, the sort of pre-rock and roll listening habits of the public with a handful of, like, huge name exceptions, like Frank Sinatra or someone. In many cases, people knew the song and knew less, you know, who the performer behind the song was. So you might go to a record store or a jukebox or whatever and just request the song. And as long as it sounded like the version you heard on the radio, you might not know or even care who the artist was, which is why you could get away with, you know, sometimes a, a hit song would have a dozen or more sound alike covers released like within a month and each one, you know, selling to people who in many cases didn't know the difference. And you write that the it changed to kind of the present day version of a cover song, the meaning, as a result of a cultural shift. So basically what happened it is much bigger than covers, but it's that, you know, the performers that people knew by name and wanted to hear explicitly, that became the main thing. You know, Sinatra was an exception before, but now you think Elvis, you don't want anyone singing Heartbreak Hotel, right? That sounds kind of like Elvis. You want Elvis doing it, and that <laughs> basically has continued ever since. And so as a result, you know, I think tricking record buyers like that became harder to do. 
And so, you know, you mentioned this, you know, covers can do a couple of things. One is introduce a, a little known artist to a larger audience. And another uh, is that can reveal new meaning in the in lyrics and explore cultural avenues that were only hinted at maybe at the beginning. Let's have a quick look through a couple of songs through those lenses. And then I'd like to dig a little deeper into some of the stories that you tell. But the first point, and, and maybe one of the biggest, other than maybe Elvis's, you know, the, the Big Bang had to be the Beatles' Twist and Shout. And I think a lot of folks would be surprised to learn that that was an Isley Brothers song. That's true. And even the Isley Brothers version was technically a cover. It first came out by this group called the Top Notes, which didn't do much of anything. Then the Isley Brothers covered that, and it did more. It, did, it wasn't a big hit by any means, but it was big enough that R&B freaks and super fans like the four guys in the Beatles might plausibly have heard it and picked it up. And indeed they did over in the UK. And yeah, and then that's the version they took and, you know, made their own and of course brought it to a much larger audience than even the Isley Brothers had. But it's fair to say they probably own that song. And I think what's really interesting, especially about some of the Brit bands, is is the you know deep dive into African-American music that wasn't really even happening in the States. And you can go through the Beatles and the Stones and just find a whole you know set list of, of songs that we didn't know about, yet they were our songs, so to speak. It's a double-edged sword in a way, because on the one end, you have the people you mentioned, the Beatles, the Stones, etc., who revere this music, who are introducing these songs and these artists to a wider audience, and always being very careful to give credit to shout out the people. Elvis, as well, would be included in that. But then on the other hand, in the early days of rock and roll, people like Pat Boone, where there's kind of an industry of taking songs that are hits on black radio and covering them for white audiences. You know, you think of him doing Tutti Frutti. He had a much bigger hit with that than Little Richard did and made more money off of it, even though it kind of is a vestige of the original form of cover where he was just trying to basically copy it but put a white face on it. So the race thing is pretty complicated in the history of cover songs. Right, right. You know, one of the interesting ones, everybody knows the Righteous Brothers version of Unchained Melody. That's ubiquitous. That's the only version, really. But... I don't know that I knew the original version, which in and of itself is an incredible story. Can you tell that story? Sure. And that's one that I, you know, I've had this covers blog for years, and I'm not sure I knew that that was a cover for Mm. quite a long time. But yeah, the original story is that it was actually a song from a movie, a movie literally called Unchained, that was a prison escape movie, a completely forgettable and forgotten prison escape movie. But there was this one scene where this local opera singer at this time, uh, a guy named Todd Duncan, sung the title song in that movie, which is Unchained Melody. But it was funny learning that because I had never thought to ask the question, why is this song called Unchained Melody? Like they're never singing about chains mm-hmm. or anything. And it's because it was literally the melody from the movie Unchained. Wow. Have you heard that original version? Have you gone back and heard it? I have. And in fact, you can watch not only the movie, but there's on YouTube, someone has excerpted. He's like sitting in his bunk bed in prison, just kind of singing. And it's great. I mean, the guy's he's an opera singer, so obviously he has a great voice. But knowing the Righteous Brothers version so well, you know, sometimes originals end up sounding like they're the covers. Right. Right. Let's dig a little deeper and start with a couple of my favorite covers in your book and also the stories from your book. You know, another one that I think everybody loves is Aretha Franklin's version of Respect. And that was originally written and recorded by Otis Redding. And it's another one where the cover has kind of become the standard bearer. But I love the story that in your book of how and where Aretha first heard the song. Yeah, so this was relatively early in her career, of course. And she had, in fact, just moved out of living with her father. And so she's in her first apartment. And one day she's just cleaning it. And she hears uh, Otis Redding's original version of Respect on the radio. 
and you know it puts the bug in her ear that maybe she should sing it yeah i think she was ironing is that what she said or something and she's just you know out doing these chores and all of a sudden you know it, it springs and yeah she's just having the radio as you know background music probably ignoring it half the time right. and it just grabs her yeah and and you know that's a very different version it's a really good version but as i just said you know aretha's version has probably become the one but aretha and her sisters and the backup singers they really reworked the song and their additions included many of what would become the iconic parts of the song. Yeah, I mean, if you go back and listen to Otis Redding's version, almost everything you would immediately associate with the song Respect isn't in it, right? I mean, the verses are the same, but like, for one, the R-E-S-P-E-C-T, not in Otis Redding's version, but just a little bit not in Otis Redding's version. Basically, once they decided to cover it, they kind of tore it down to his essence, and they came up with the R-E-S-P-E-C-T, because Aretha said she wanted to spell it out to sort of give it, you know, from more of a woman's perspective and a little broader than just the relationship song. So it's very dramatically transformed. And a really cool little tidbit is uh, the re-re-re-backing vocals. I, I think it's so cool what that's about. Yeah. Um, so obviously it ties into the title, but also re was Aretha's nickname, you know, in her family and, and elsewhere. So uh, it kind of worked in a couple couple ways. Yeah, nothing like having some sisters, you know, got your back there. And You know, aside from the songwriting changes, uh, Jerry Wexler put Aretha back on the piano to cut the song. And many of the final arrangements were done on the spot. I think it was with the Muscle Shoals Band. Is that right? Yeah, with the Swampers. This was kind of a, a pivotal point in her career. She had produced and released a number of albums already on uh, her first label, Columbia, that went more or less nowhere they're kind of if you go listen to them they're nice they're kind of light jazz pleasant but they're not grabbing what makes aretha great and so this was kind of like a second try she was signed to atlantic jerry wexler took over she's with the swampers who is this are these legendary kind of soul influenced backing musicians and part of what jerry wexler wanted to do as you said was put her on piano she could play piano great that had not been utilized at all in her earlier recordings but he found that not only was her piano playing great but when she was singing while playing piano, she just had so much more soul and energy and all the things, you know, sort of from her gospel background, you would go on to associate with her. And you write that the fact that Respect became a cultural anthem was a surprise even to Aretha. And this is one of the ones that, that really represent that cultural shift. It not only became a cultural anthem, but it almost became two cultural anthems, right? On the one end, it becomes a cultural anthem for, you know, the burgeoning feminist and women's rights movement. On the other hand, it becomes a cultural anthem for the civil rights movement. And, you know, Aretha did not at all anticipate either of those, and you know, but she sort of embraced them gradually in the years to come, kind of saying, you know, I didn't mean it as a feminist anthem, but if it became one, works for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, before Otis Redding died, Jerry Wexler played Aretha's version for him. Can you recount that meeting and what was said and what Otis's reaction was? You know, Otis didn't say much about it generally because he unfortunately did pass away, you know, not long after. But the one recorded comment is something he said to Jerry Wexler. Jerry plays him the version. He said Otis got this big smile on his face and basically said, uh, the girl has taken that song from me. From now on, it belongs to her. There's a lot of truth in that, too. Let's move to the mid-70s. Uh, there's a couple of radical reworkings of classic rock hits. And Patti Smith was a spoken word poet transitioning into music. And the band started with simple songs, and Patty said they chose songs with only three chords. And one of those was Them's Gloria with Van Morrison. And although the band knew his version, it wasn't that version that had excited them. That's right. 
talk about Beatles kind of being covers of covers in the way Gloria was too. The version that they and particularly guitarist Lenny Kay knew and loved best was the uh, 60s Chicago kind of garage rock group called Shadows of Night, which when I interviewed Lenny, he said both had a lot more angst to it and also was the one they were listening to on the radio stations at the time. Well, you know, in your book, guitarist Lenny Kay nails a retelling of how they keep part of the song but leave Patty some room to explore. A spontaneous moment emerges in 1974 when Patty merged parts of a poem she had written into the song Gloria. Can you fill our listeners in on that epical mashup? Sure. As anyone, you know, who read her book knows, Patty was kind of a poet first. She thought of herself as a poet. She was doing live poetry readings for several years before she even began dabbling with music. Um, and so at some of these readings, she would have Lenny Kay accompany her, but not really exactly as a musician, more like he would play kind of atonal, arty, you know, guitar noises as she recited poems. So she has this poem called Oath that she's had, you know, been kicking around for many years and includes lines like Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. I think it was Christ at the time, but basically the same thing. And then what they began to do is she would do these poetry readings as kind of to I don't know, broaden it into music. They She would read a poem and then they would kind of transition into a cover of some sort of rock song. And so that's basically what emerged one day when they were in the studio working. She, you know, recites her poem, Oath, and then she's holding a bass. So she starts hitting this big open E string, which kind of is, you know, a sound in the song Gloria, which, you know, they all know more or less. And so then they just sort of, after she finishes the poem, just transition into Gloria and it kind of stuck. And Lenny Kay had a big role in the band adding this song to their set, correct? So he'd been performing it for years, even before meeting Patti Smith, even before meeting uh, in New York. He, When I talked to him, he was talking about, you know, in the 60s, playing it from the local events. And he was really the champion of glory. You know, again, Patti was a, a poet, and so she wanted her poetry and she wanted her original songs. But he was like, you know, he later compiled nuggets and, you know, was this real garage rock guy. So he kind of kind of made it make Gloria happen for them. And that track, importantly, kicks off the band's debut album. And I was shocked to learn that that was recorded live. Yeah, I mean, at that point, you know, there was a lot of hype behind them because they had been performing shows all over New York City. They were kind of this, you know, hip New York band, even though they hadn't released much music. And yeah, so they were just so polished that they could kind of just get in the studio and knock something like that out. Interestingly, John Cale was supposedly the producer, but he wasn't around that much. Is that right? Yeah, there was a lot of friction between him and Patti Smith. She had hired him because she liked the sound of some of the recordings he had produced. But then there's a funny quote where she tells him that. He's like, wait, you like the sound of them? You should have hired the engineer, <laughs> which was more or less true, right? She just wanted someone to like capture what they sounded like. She didn't really want mm -hmm. a producer to help shape the sound. She's like, we already know the sound. And so there was just constant tension. And yeah, by the end, like by the time they were mixing this stuff, John Cale had basically just left and uh, other people <laughs> had to finish it up. And the engineer did what he's supposed to do, right? Yeah, exactly. That might be one of the more dramatic recasting songs in music history. However, there's one that rivals it, and I think it's one of your very favorites, and that would be 1977, Devo Takes on the Rolling Stones' Satisfaction. It's one of the all-time great covers. Some days it might be my favorite cover. <laughs> and you write that everything was riding on Mick Jagger's reaction, and the label felt that Devo's version was just so weird that they needed Jagger's approval to release it. And that, that's pretty fascinating. And there was a New York meeting with Mick Jagger, Mark Mothersbaugh, and Jerry Casale, right? Yeah, and you know that gets at, I think, a misconception that a lot of people have about covers, which is that you need the person's approval to cover, which typically you do not, right? You can cover 
Blackbird without getting Paul McCartney to like personally send you an email saying it's okay. But in this case, for reasons that are a little vague, but are probably just because no, the label didn't want to piss off Mick Jagger with this incredibly different version, they decided that these, you know, art punks from Ohio needed to like actually get him to say yes before they would release it. So yeah, so they sort of go in this, you know, in this stuffy New York conference room and the two guys I talked to from Diva, you know, they're nervous. They're not, no one knows who they are. They're at this meeting with Mick Jagger, who also doesn't know who they are. And so they have this boom box. They just put their recording in, they press play. And then Mick Jagger kind of is just sitting there stone faced. You know, one of them thought maybe he was just hung over. It was too early in the morning for him. So he's just like not moving and they're just, you know, sweating bullets. And then all of a sudden, without saying anything, about halfway through, he gets up and starts dancing around the room. And then they knew they had the uh, approval to release. Yeah. And at first they thought maybe he hated it, right? Because he was sitting there having a glass of wine and, like you said, just staring. But something happened there. And, and uh... Yeah, totally stone-faced. And they were like, oh, God, we've, like, infuriated <laughs> Mick Jagger. Not only is are they not going to release this song, but, like, now the biggest rock star in the world is pissed off at us. And no, that's the end of our career. Then uh, it turned around halfway through. So he started doing the Mick Jagger strut, and uh, the two Devo guys, they knew right away, right? Oh, yeah. They were like, all right, we got it. We're good. <laughs> um, that song came together pretty quickly at a rehearsal session. Is that right? Yeah. They were, you know, it's in a way, it's similar to Patti Smith. They were this band that no one knew, the, you know, at the very beginning of their career. And they would, it sounds weird to talk about Devo jamming. Like, that's not a word you would associate <laughs> with Devo, but that's more or less what they would do. Like, they would just, you know, kind of sit around and, and play riffs and chords and make Devo-esque noises. And they had done that with sometimes Mark Mothersbaugh would just start reciting lyrics to whatever, his own or <laughs> songs he knew just to make something happen. And they'd done that with other songs. And then one day they're kind of playing this weird riff and Mark Mothersbaugh just starts reciting the lyrics to Satisfaction and it fits. Well, it's funny because their first cover was Secret Agent Man, which you say provided a template for Satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And that one is equally as weird. Yeah, the template is sort of taking a pop hit that most people are going to know and just deconstructing it almost entirely except for the lyrics. One of them, I think it was Mar Mother's Ba, when I interviewed him, said that that song sounded, even though it's about a secret agent man, the man sounded more like a janitor than a gigolo. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, well, if, if Patti Smith was more of a poet, Devo was as much an art project as it was a band. And you write, they soon realized that their cover perfectly encapsulated the de-evolution philosophy. Yeah, in a way, it kind of did on two fronts. One is the musical one I was just talking about, where they've taken this ubiquitous rock song and kind of deconstructed it down to its absolute barest elements. And then the second sort of tie into their de-evolution philosophy of, you know, society getting worse and everything getting terrible was on the lyrics. You know, again, it's a rock song. Everyone just sort of sings along without thinking about it. But Mark Mothersbaugh said they're some of his favorite lyrics ever because, you know, they're about conspicuous consumption and, you know, exploitation and just, you know, sort of things he saw in society that were problems. And so he's like, even though it's this rock song, these lyrics are like all the things we're talking about, about people getting dumber and society getting worse. And they were a real band in that they played a lot in the Cleveland area live. And this song became a huge part of their live show. Yeah, it kind of became their, their showstopper, although at the time they were playing it a lot slower. But they found that even though it sounds nothing like Satisfaction, the lyrics are, you know, it's the same. So people would recognize it and it kind of became a bridge into their weird kind of art punk world. Art punk. Well, David Bowie and Brian Eno become fans and Eno called them, quote, terrifying to work with. 
And the band also did not always appreciate his production additions. No, not at all. In a way, it's kind of like the Patti Smith, John Cale issue. Again, Devo, as you said, had been playing live a whole bunch. They had their sound really refined. They knew what they were. They knew what they wanted their album to sound like. They basically just wanted someone who was going to capture it. But Brian Eno, as anyone who knows about him knows, is not exactly a fly-on-the-wall type. So he and David Bowie, who's, who's just sort of hanging around, end up adding all sorts of things. They add synthesizers. They add vocal effects. And, they, and then every time they do this, sort of when the band's gone, they try to, quote-unquote, improve the track. And then the band has to come in and take all that stuff off again. So they're, they're, in some world, there's versions of the Devo songs, including Satisfaction, with David Bowie doing backing vocals. But those were erased before <laughs> they went anywhere. Well, equally as groundbreaking is they made a video for that song, and it was made for $5,000. This is well before MTV and its popularity, but it would lead to an early Saturday Night Live experience, which really cemented the song. They were so early to the video thing that it kind of made their career in some ways. They were as much a sort of visual band as they were a, a musical band, and so they got this you know, relative pittance of money to make this video. Jerry Casale worked at a janitorial supply company, so he ordered some kind of weird waste, like hazmat type suits, and they get some visuals that kind of encapsulate the lyrics, like a baby sticking a fork in a toaster, you know, this kind of de-evolution <laughs> stuff. And so then they, they do this for this song and, and a few others. When there's basically nowhere to air these videos, they come out on like, you know, laser discs or whatever, but they're kind of just obscure. But then MTV comes along a few years later. Now there's a whole channel. No one else has been making music videos, so they're desperate need for content. And then Devo, you know, pops up and says, oh, we have a whole bunch of videos if you're looking for stuff to air. And so their songs, including Satisfaction, you know, became much more well-known. And yeah, then it landed them a gig on Saturday Night Live where they kind of, you know, brought their thing to the masses. One of them told me that, you know, the people who are staying up, you know, at midnight on Saturday nights, the weird weirdo loners watching like satirical comedy was, was exactly their audience. Well, it's amazing, too, because, you know, to do a cover is so radically different. And then you have this visual presentation that it has to be anti-Stones, you know, the herky-jerky thing. But it's hard to separate them. When you hear Devo's take, I immediately can see that video in my head. I and mean, that's a pretty amazing thing to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, they really perfectly matched the sort of aesthetic of the sound with the music. I mean, yeah, you can just picture, you know, them doing these kind of herky-jerky robot motions and wearing these hazmat suits. and. Uh, in the exact opposite of Mick Jagger and, you know, leather and leopard print. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, hazmat suits and leopard prints. That's a little bit different. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new Factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 
50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. We're speaking with Ray Padgett. He's the author of Cover Me, the stories behind the greatest cover songs of all time. I highly recommend this book, mostly because there's so many different stories and so many different styles of music that I really feel everyone would really enjoy reading it. And one more song in depth. Uh, it falls kind of in between these, Aretha, Patty, and Devo. And that is the Talking Heads 1978 take on Al Green's Take Me to the River. Yeah, that's another one of my favorites. Again, a band that takes a song and just sort of makes it in, in their own image and also kind of like um, Patty and Devo especially, uses it a bridge, a band that kind of has a unique and slightly weird and strange sound, but they're able to take a song, you know, that in some cases people might know and use that as a way to sort of invite people into their weird little world and then people listen to their own stuff. Yeah, and similarly, in terms of, you know, strategic execution, college buddies Byrne and France, David Byrne and Chris France, were both big Al Green fans. But early on, David Byrne said, quote, there's no way I was going to be able to sing it like Al Green. So it ended up as something else. That is an understatement. Yeah, I mean, th that's sort of a, a thread of covers, uh, some covers where they actually kind of try to do it like the original, but just aren't capable of it. There's another quote I pulled from the Chris Franz, his bandmate that I loved, said, as much as we hoped it would sound like Al Green, it never did. I'm sure at the time I felt like, oh, wow, this is really funky but it still sounded like a bunch of white kids from the suburbs. <laughs> so they, they made it their own, maybe without even trying to. Yeah, and you very humorously and accurately break down the hows and whys that this was different. Can you recount some of those? I think the Al Green version or the, you know, the other kind of R&B versions that had come out by that time, they're very sexual, they're very sensual, uh, they're very romantic. Um, whereas none of those things really describe talking heads, at least not in any conventional sense. They're kind of academic. They're all incredibly nerdy. You know, they're all coming from art schools. So they're kind of taking this Southern soul thing and filtering it through this, you know, Upper East Coast art school sound. And uh, it ends up in a very different place. But much like Devo Satisfaction, that song became a crowd favorite as well, right? It did. And in, in a way, I, one thing I was surprised to learn, because the Al Green one was it was not obscure. You right. know, it had, it had done pretty well. But, you know, Talking Heads is playing, you know, kind of the, the New York punk scene. They're playing CBGB and places like that. And the, and one of them was saying to me that in those circles, like R&B, soul music were just anathema. Like all people talked about was the Velvet Underground and Iggy Pop and David Bowie. And so they didn't necessarily know Take Me to the River. And Talking Heads were like, listen, we're, we listen to all those other people too, but we're also listening to soul music and R&B. And it was a way for them to kind of bring that and show that side of themselves um, to this kind of, you know, New York punk crowd. And interestingly, enter again Brian Eno, uh, but this time with much better results than he had with Devo. <laughs> yes, much better. Uh, yeah, this one they were recording down in the Bahamas, the studio called Compass Point. And again, Eno sort of wanted to assert himself and influence the sound. But in this case, the band was uh, receptive to it. For one, they had played it much faster live. And Eno was like, play it as slow as you possibly can, which sort of became the template for the version they did. And then Eno also imposed a, a strict rule on overdubs. Like he wanted it pretty close to a live sound from the band. So um, Jerry Harrison was, was telling me that it led to all these ridiculous scenes. Like there was a rule that you could only overdub you know one note per every few bars so he'd be doing an overdub session with like a little wooden box hitting it you know every 15 seconds that was like the limits of the overdubs however that did not stop brian eno 
from overdubbing a hell of a lot. <laughs> he had these early synthesizers that he, you know, had brought down. So he would plug in and add add weird effects and stuff. So yeah, so it, it went better than it had gone with Devo for sure. What did uh, Al Green think of that version? With all these sort of what they think of, I'd love to get like their initial reactions, not just Al Green, but kind of all of these people when it's so different. Like later they, you know, people tend to say they like it because it's making money and it's a hit. But I'm always curious, like, well, what do they really think? Because it's so weird. It's so different than Al Green. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious with, with various stories, but people say nice things. Yeah, they don't all do the rooster strut dance, I'm sure, but uh, <laughs> no. Um, you know, an interesting side story is how the Talking Heads sophomore album got its name. Can you recount that? Because I did not know that. Yeah, I like that. They had a different name they were working under for a while, but they didn't like it, and they were kind of not sure what to call it. This is their second album, I should say. That's important. They already had one album and a few singles out. So they go, what are we going to call an album that's just like more songs about buildings and food? And the other one goes, let's just call it more songs about buildings and food. And uh, and so they did. <laughs> That is, it's very art school abstract right there. I mean, uh, and and it is you know a title that you just can't forget. And this is another cover that's just so different from the original to stand on its own, but perhaps even overtake it, isn't it? In some ways, yeah. I mean, you know, it reached a very different audience. But what was interesting, I interviewed David Byrne, and he, unlike most of the other people we're discussing, had kind of mixed feelings about it, and not only about the song, which he, he liked the recording, but about it being a hit. They had already had an album, but this was their first actual hit. And again, for all the reasons we've said, people recognized it. It was sort of a window in. But then David Byrne, you know, who's writing a million songs, even by that point, which have not become hits, kind of got resentful that the one song that like DJs were playing was a song just that everyone kind of already knew the lyrics to. And as a result, he decided that the band wouldn't record any more covers, and uh, they didn't. I'm going to put you on the spot for a second. Uh, your book starts with Elvis Presley covering Big Mama Thornton and goes through what we've talked about here and then all the way down into the hip-hop era and uh, you know Johnny Cash doing some industrial noise covers and things like that. Do you have a favorite? I mean, how did, how did you come up with just 20 songs? There were a few criteria. I mean, I, I decided early on that I didn't want to do like an encyclopedia type approach, right? You could do 300 songs. You could do 500 songs, all, all of which would be famous. There's a million cover songs. But I wanted to really go deep into a few stories as opposed to sort of just having one paragraph on a bunch of stuff. And so a couple criteria. One was, and maybe the biggest one, was I wanted them to have some sort of influence on the story of the cover song overall. I wanted to tell the story and the history of the cover song through 19 representative covers. So I, each chapter in my book, you know, pulls at some thread that has broader significance. That was one. And then there were other sort of just more mundane things about writing a book. Like I couldn't get the right people to talk with me. Then I'd, I'd probably find something else that, uh, you know, where I could get the access I wanted. And of course, I guess the, the other thing about writing a book is with some cover songs, the story behind them just isn't that interesting. <laughs> some A&R guy says, hey, you should cover this song. It'll be a hit. And the person says, OK. And then it is the end. So, you know, I had to exclude those. Right. Shortest chapter in the book, it would be. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, I mean, that's a lot of cover songs. Right. 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 Well, this is Ray Paget. His book is Cover Me, the stories behind the greatest cover songs of all time. It's a fabulous read because there's so much different information and the stories are really great. Uh, Ray also joined us to talk about his Leonard Cohen book, and he also has a blog. So this all started from a blog also called Cover Me um, that started in college, what, 13 years ago now. And yeah, and that's still going strong. Any uh, chance there's going to be a second book on great cover songs? Or you, I mean, I know you do them a lot on the blog, and I think you did some Christmas songs or Christmas covers lately. I follow it, you know, check in and out and see what you're up to, because it's, it's all up to date, and there's always new content there, right? 
I mean, I have a whole staff now, so we're posting, you know, multiple things every day. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know there will be a second book just like this one. I sort of did that tangential thing for the book we talked about a few months ago that's, you know, covers adjacent about tribute albums. So if something like that comes down the pike, I may I may figure that out. But, you know, uh, I definitely want to do another book, but I haven't figured out exactly what yet. Well, you know, my background is in music art direction, and I will say that the cover of the book is fabulous, and it's really designed in a way that it's just such a fun read. So congratulations on the book, Ray. Thank you. Yeah, shout out to our Sterling Publisher who did all the visuals. They, I didn't even realize, like, when people see it, there's, you know, all these images of the singles and stuff. And they literally went out and like bought all these singles of the songs they talk about on eBay and like had a photo shoot at the office for all these <laughs> records and stuff to do the great layout. I was very impressed. Well, it looks exactly the way it should. And that's a huge tribute to both the songs and to you and to the publisher. Thanks for joining us, Ray. I appreciate your time. This has been fun. Thanks for having me again. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com. You can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning into Deep Dive, an all-music books podcast. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.